I walk along the gravel path that divides the back of the lawn, neatly, like a hair parting. It has rained during the night. The grass to either side is damp, the air humid. Here and there are worms, evidence of the fertility of the soil, caught by the sun, half-dead, flexible and pink like lips. And welcome to the Ofcast, a Handmaid's Tale reader. I'm your host, Elsie Eigerman. And I'm your host, Max Mariner. And today we're talking about Chapter 4. Max, I'm excited. Are you excited? I am very excited, because now things get sexy. Yes. Well, I mean, I feel like this this chapter is about as sexy as the, the, the first chapter. And similarly about, like, teenage horniness. Yeah, as an extremely, very Sexy. Just like the rest of the, the book. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, you, you as wanna... I go through this chapter summary, I mean, I, I, you know, I was reading this chapter, I don't know, may, I don't know if I'm old enough yet to read the book. I, it's really adult content. Well, you know, we can, we can take a, a break and you can, like, relieve yourself after summarizing. <laughs> That's if, if not it's getting you too, too hot and bothered. Oh, man. You put me in that, you know what? You know what? I, you may have locked me in that cage, but I gave you the key. The, this is... Uh, no, 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 I'm not gonna make that joke. <laughs> yeah, please, and thank you. <laughs> so, um, I'll just do this chapter summary real quick. Offred walks down a gravel path, passes by a guardian washing a car, and he <gasps> winks at her. And then she continues to walk, bumps into Ofglen, walks past two other guards, and thinks about how they will never, uh, get off. Yep. Um, Again, I mean, it's a, it is a very Ovglen, sexual. Ovglen is her shopping partner. It isn't like she runs into her. Like Ovglen yeah, she's is like a, going to... she, She's also like a. I don't want to say spy, but like they're like yes. accountability partners. Well, like if one no, of them she, dies, Offred literally refers to Ovglen as 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 her spy. Okay, yeah, but then um, there also is another point where they bring up a spy. That, that's like a word that's used. Yeah, uh, no, this this once. chapter is a lot of everyone is spying on everyone. So we mm -hmm. meet we meet Nick for the first time in this chapter. This is the first male character we've met. Yeah. Um, unless you count Luke, who's been mentioned a couple of times, but hasn't we haven't had really a scene with him. Um, but this is this is the first time that we we meet a, a man. Um, and we see the the trend that we we've we started with Serena Joy, where characters don't introduce themselves. Offred just tells us what their names are. Yeah, and uh, you know I find it interesting. At this point, Elsie, if I'm not mistaken, we still have never heard Offred's name spoken in this book yet. Yep. So if you went into this book completely blind, which I recommend, it's a fun experience for any piece of media, you would have so much confusion about this character named uh, of Glenn. What of Glenn, what? I mean, now we know who what Offred's name is, so that doesn't like that isn't like a huge deal for us. But for somebody reading this for the first time who would have like no idea otherwise, this must have been a very strange moment of like, what does of Glenn mean? Like, what what? How far in the future does this take place? You know? Yeah, no. For a friend of mine, it 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 took meeting like two or three more handmaids before she realized the construction of their names is like. Of Glenn, of Fred. Yeah, that was like the first. That was like the only detail I knew about this world for years up until like I up until now, basically. I'm surprised going back and rereading it because I feel like with with the adaptations, they they go out of their way to establish like why they're called of Fred or of Glenn, but Atwood doesn't even introduce it. She just sort of throws it at you, and you have to pick up on it. Yeah, I find it extremely interesting in this chapter that 
it is about spies and always seeking and stuff, which is really interesting considering how lonely the descriptions have of the chapters have felt so far, how isolated everything feels. The fact is, it's the contradiction of living in a very, like, dystopian world that is both very lonely and also very seen. Yeah. <laughs> as, the, as in the, the first chapter points out. The spying is part of the loneliness. Um, yeah. It's, it's she doesn't... She's, she can't tell whether or not Avglen is a, a true believer or not, but she doesn't want to test it. Mm -hmm. I also find it, I also find it really funny that the first guardian that we run into is washing a car. Like because I'm that kind of guy, I immediately assume he's like washing a car, like super getting into it and stuff. Like you're walking by, like <laughs> on a sidewalk, like in the summer, and it's just like this guardian. And then you remember, oh, this is really sad. So he's got well, this yeah, French face. I mean, he's he's described as doing it lovingly. Yeah. And also, I find it interesting that Alfred, like, comments on the, the type of car, that it's a very expensive one, a whirlwind, better than the chariot, much better than the chunky practical, practical behemoth. Mm -hmm. did, did you have a car phase, Max? I feel like most guys have car phases. No, never. I That's... had a Mario card phase. <laughs> I mean, I wish I was joking, but that's that's the extent to which I know about cars. Yeah, so like, I, I think it's 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 an interesting choice that like he's washing the car, and we get this like loving description of both him and the car. Mm -hmm. I I mean, because as you point out, like you know, a lot of guys go through like g cars are kind of a a staple of male culture, I guess. Yeah, sort of. Even though, even though like I I, it's not an exclusive thing to male culture. Just like it's kind of like a stereotype kind of thing. And it's the it's the first line we hear the commander say is in a flashback in this chapter where it says where she says once I heard the commander speaking to him Nick I won't be needing the car the dream the dream yes <laughs> For, if that's something that millennials can relate to because most of us really don't like cars <laughs> is the Handmaid's Tale a numbtop feature the answer yeah. is no the answer yeah, is no, no. No, no I also want to just like while we're at the, like the beginning with the stuff I want to point out. And I'm sure this was intentional. I mean, everything in this book is, but like this is especially when she talks about opening the white picket gate and continuing. Oh, oh yeah. my God. Like that's like Michael Bay levels of Americana. Like that is like if you ever want to like describe an American household and use it as the context by which to put a, put apart your entire rest of the world, you use the white picket fence. Yeah, and you know this this goes back to the previous chapter where we got the loving description of Serena Joy's garden. It's this beautiful, beautiful garden that's surrounded by a white picket fence, mm -hmm. and everything is is pristinely maintained. Too pristinely maintained, in fact. Yes. Which I which I find interesting because I would always think that like not messiness, but like if something is not super like perfect, it it kind of gives a, a human impression. Like yeah, a human was here. And so when everything is so, like, nice and clean and tidy and cold, it's like, really, it's like nobody's there. Or whatever yeah. beings are there are not humanized. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's definitely to a, a certain degree what's happening here. And, like, to, to go back to the, the washing of the car, it's this, this pristinely maintained car as well. That, like, everything in the commander's household is, like, immaculate and beautiful. Even Alfred's room, um, which is in many ways a prison cell, um, like, has this painting of a flower and, like, a desk with a chair and a, a, a window seat. And, like, it has this sort of... It's decorated, mm -hmm. um, despite the fact that there, there's no real reason for it to be, other than yeah. the fact that everything must be pretty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting also that like we see um, we see Nick, the, the the guardian, who is clearly like 
able-bodied and handsome and isn't one of the other guardians who are described as either being, like, very young or defective in some way. That French face. He's got that, that beautiful, beautiful French face. Nick isn't holding a machine gun. He is pro- probably holding a sponge. Like, let's be real. He's, like, washing a car. Yeah. Um, that he isn't he isn't one of the ones who's holding a machine gun and might shoot Offred. He, like, winks at her, and she's like, what the fuck? Um, yeah. Okay, I want to point out, like, if, you know, in case it kind of flew anybody ever in anybody's head, that's why it was like, this is a really steamy chapter. And I think, like... Oh, there's... But the, the ending of the chapter is the story. Oh, yeah. The ending of the chapter, we will talk... Like, that is my favorite part of the chapter. Absolutely. <laughs> what I find so interesting is that this is the first... Like, this chapter includes, like, not the first mention of sexuality, perhaps, but the first mention of general, regular attraction. It's not like, I'm going to impregnate you. It's not like... It's just a guy winking at a woman, which is a cultural symbol, especially in the 1980s, for, like, implied attraction. And the fact yeah. that it is, like, immediately casted doubt and it is like is suspicious to offer it immediately is a great way to communicate the kind of tone and attitude of the uh of the republic of gilead yeah and i i think it's it's also interesting that you know the first um three chapters had a lot of stuff about not really being seen and here's this driver who like makes eye contact with her and winks at her um because even with serena joy in the previous chapter she describes serena joy as like looking at Serena Joy's hand and torso. And when she talks about Rita and Cora, she talks about overhearing their conversations from outside and not like looking in the, looking them in the eye and talking to them. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that poses an interesting uh, contrast. I, I think that there's there's something uh, Atwood is getting at when the, the uh, secret police are called eyes. Mm-hmm. Especially. I mean, oh, man, it was either <laughs> it was either Stalin or Hitler who had a similar name for their like for the SS or for the like the brown coats or whatever. Mm-hmm. Kind of like in a similar sort of like inherent need, like the eyes are to the face. That kind yeah. of thing. I, I can't remember, but it's a similar kind of approach. Like to describe these as eyes is like so sinister, you know? Yeah. And the, I think the the being seen puts you at serious risk where she's like, I if I'm at all like vulnerable around Avglen, if I reveal anything to her or try to get her to reveal anything, she might be an eye. She might turn me in. Mm-hmm. Which is just... Just a great symbol of the kind of trust that we have for our fellow man here in the Republic of Gilead. Yeah, it's great. Blessed be the fruit, you know what I'm saying? May the Lord open. Um, yeah, this is also the, the chapter where we get all the, the fun Gileadisms. Praise be. We've been sent good weather, which I receive with joy. So there's there's a lot of description of her, her conversations with Avglen, which aren't really conversations. Um, and there's a bit where she talks about Avglen saying... Um, that they've defeated more rebels and that the the rebels had a stronghold in the Blue Hills and they've been smoked out. Um, as someone who grew up in the Boston area, this is like kind of funny because like the Blue Hills is like a, a hiking reservation in a suburb that like when you're like in first grade, your school will like you do a school trip there because they have owls and other types of um, animals that you can cool. like go look at but it's a terrible place to have a rebel stronghold like it doesn't which may may, that might be the point like (laughs) like this is like things are so bad that even the people trying to fight back are just terrible at their jobs you would you would expect the rebels to be like 
urban combatants or like there there are larger reservations in Massachusetts that would make more sense but like the Blue Hills is like it's kind of mm-hmm. silly it's like it's a little more than as though the rebels were hiding out in Central Park and got s- snuffed out yeah um, the Blue Hills is a little bit bigger than that but like it's still like it's not that big it's a terrible place to hide out um, yeah I also think there's some interesting perhaps metatextual commentary on the nature of how this story is being told in that I think for the most part, the story of The Handmaid's Tale, the story of the Republic of Gilead, would likely normally be framed at, from the perspective of a rebel trying to fight back. And that, yeah. that's how a lot of the stories. But to hear about how they lost and got smoked out, which I assume means either shot out or just completely like overtaken. Well, is I, kind of an... I take smoked out to mean that there was like some kind of siege and they got them to like... Surrender. Yeah. Okay, yeah. That's what I thought too. I wasn't sure if like smoked out meant like they just like wiped them all out or something. But like... To hear that it's going that badly kind of like represents like the uh, like how the usual book would go and yeah. like how it's you know how it just blew up and now we're here with Alfred instead. Yeah, and like Alfred fully admits that like it might be fake news. Mm. Um cuz she's like I'm ravenous for news, any kind of news, even if it's false news, it must mean something. Which I mean, that's not entirely untrue to say of the fake news that we know of today. It always means something. It yeah, always it, tells us something. Well, there's the there's a, a story I was once told about living in the Soviet Union. What you would do is you you buy five newspapers, and you'd read each newspaper's description of events, and then you could figure out what the official story was. Hmm. Based on how each of the newspapers told the story. Huh. That's um, interesting. And there's, there's similar things where like. In the Soviet Union, if something went really wrong, they'd start playing Swan Lake on repeat, and you could tell that something had gone wrong. Whoa. That's ominous. Yeah, and I also noticed is that I, I'm not sure maybe this is my edition, um, but I see quotation marks. Yes. I was going to say, thank the Lord. Praise <laughs> be. We got quotation marks, people. Things finally feel normal again. And I don't know why there's quotation marks, because this is specifically things she's recalling. These are snippets. This isn't, like, a cohesive scene. To continue what we talked about last episode with these inconsistencies that you're noticing. Yeah. But to what end? What Ah, do these tell us? I don't know what it means. On the same... I I think, hopefully, as we continue reading, you'll, like... It'll it'll all click, you know? Yeah, there's got to be a pattern to it. I just don't know what this pattern is. So but there's a theme of uh, dr- dr- drama, a theme of uh, theater in this, um, mm-hmm. specifically with uh, how it, let's see, just a little bit afterwards, after she's, you know, after, the, after speaking about the soil and the worms that, look, that uh, resemble vaginas in the soil, uh, Alfred is later, later recalls a time when she, um, when she is arms up in the air now, let's pretend we're trees. I stand on the corner pretending I am a tree. Now, yes. I don't know if that's, I, yeah. I love it because it, it so... The, the context of this is uh, she has this flashback to Aunt Lydia talking about how the the handmaids need to be strong. Um, some of you will fall on dry ground or, th- or, or thorns. Some of you are shallow rooted. Um, she said, think of yourselves as seeds. Right mm-hmm. then, her voice was uh, wheedling, conspiratorial, like the voices of those women who used to teach ballet classes to children, who would say, arms up in the air now, let's pretend we're trees. Uh, I, st- so <laughs> I love it- how defeatist her the next sentence is. I stand on the corner, pretending I am a tree. Yeah. 
that like that the like Aunt Lydia's tone is being described like a kindergarten teacher here. Yeah. Of this like very smiley and happy. Mm-hmm. Um like I mean, oh god. Here we go, folks. Here we go. Another reference. Reminds me of Umbridge. Yes. It just does. I was I was about to say that, but that we can think <laughs> of Aunt Lydia as being like Dolores Umbridge. <laughs> okay, okay, fine. It reminds me of the teacher from Matilda. There, see? Now now we're not gonna reference it. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> She's talking like a kindergarten teacher, but she's talking about is that like, well, some of you will be broken by the fact that you you have to be raped every month. Oh, God. I I was going to be like, sounds like a drag. I can't even make a joke about that. Like, that's just. Yeah. Like, like, it's just so eerie. And now I'm not sure if this was intentional because this is just where my mind went. But when they were doing the whole pretending I'm a tree thing, I immediately thought of like, like the everlasting joke about what it means to be like in a school play when you're like, yes, you're going to be tree number A or B or whatever. For for example, I was a snake number two in a a, a production at my elementary school, which immediately led me to the conversation that Alfred has with Ovglen, where it sounds so staged like it's so like not candid it sounds like it was written by a fifth grader in the Gileadian republic like it's just like it's so wooden which might speak you know which probably speaks to how people communicate in this dystopia she specifically describes Avglen as um during these walks she has never said anything that was not strictly orthodox but then neither have i Mm-hmm. Um, that they are just repeating these canned phrases to each other because that's what they're supposed to do. Like they did a few chapters ago with like, I feel ya, like that kind of thing. Well, no, because I feel you is a, a a genuine thing. It's something you would say to another woman when she expresses her feelings. This is different. This is the the state has given them a lexicon of things they're supposed to say to each other, and they're only saying that lexicon because they're terrified that the other will report them. Yeah, which is kind of an amazing way to control a population, isn't it? Oh, yeah. As long as you, as if you make sure everybody thinks everybody else is a spy, you'll control everybody. Wait, that was like from a movie or something, or, a, or another book or something. That, that's know. that's how totalitarian regimes work. Oh, that movie. <laughs> um, that's, that's, how, that's what life in North Korea is like. Oh, boy, yeah. I guess what I meant is, like, when Alfred's talking about how, you know, she hears, like, those same sentiments, I think it was in chapter two, how she brings up, like, um, not, 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 not to deal too far away from chapter four, but in chapter yeah. two, she's, like, talking to how, you know, how they would communicate with the handmaids, and they were, like, having specific phrases that you'd hear all, all the time, and, I used, and she used to hate that kind of stuff because it sounds so fake, but then it's like, well, it's, you know, at least it's something. It kind of reminded me of that. Well, it's sort of, um, it's the, the other side of the, the coin, yeah, that, I know what you mean. We'd say that kind of that thing. That she wants the old small talk that was actually genuine, that was that was like natural words and phrases that people mm-hmm. would say, as opposed to this small talk, which is like state-sanctioned small talk. Yeah. It, it went from, hey, guys, how you doing, to how do you do, fellow humans? Yes. Yeah. And I guess, and it's funny, it's like... Uh, Offered was like, I used to hate that kind of talk, but now I just, I desire it. You know, you don't know what you got until it's gone, that kind of thing. Yeah. Or in which case, ripped away from you and erased by a totalitarian regime. Yeah. Um, Let's see. Is there anything else that you'd like to go over before we enter the final act of this lovely little chapter? Well, I want to make sure that we talk about, um, that we talk about the Martha who gets shot. Oh, yes. The Martha who, it was totally a mistake. Whoops, guys. Sorry. But I guess that is part of the the last half of the chapter. Yeah, um, true. It is probably like it's stra- it, it's. Am I crazy in thinking that it is the most isolated part of the chapter? It doesn't really like 
it doesn't call back to anything. It, it, it does bring some oh, the floodlights. Oh, I disagree. I think it's it has some callbacks. Oh, fantastic! Please indulge. I want to hear it. Well, no, I, I want to wait till we get some 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 more things into it because then, then I'll have to jump to the very end because like the last paragraph oh, okay. I think <laughs> is a callback to the the first chapter. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, all right, that makes sense. Yeah, so like I think one of the the interesting little bits we get is a, a bit of gossip that she had overheard. Um, of Rita and Cora. Uh, so she she's going to the, there's like a checkpoint where she has to show her ID. And there are these mm-hmm. two guards who are teenage boys. Like we specifically get des- descriptions like, these two are very young. One has a mustache. That, um, one mustache is still sparse. One face is still blotchy. So like yeah. they have acne and like this terrible like- Peach fuzz. Peach Which, fuzz mustache. Yeah. Um, so they're like, Two 15-year-olds with machine guns. Mm-hmm. Um, this is totally normal. Totally fine. There's nothing wrong yeah. with Yeah. So, like, Alfred specifically then goes on to be like, the young ones are often the most dangerous, the most fanatical, the jumpiest with their guns. Um, they haven't yet learned about existence through time. You have to go slowly with them. Uh, and so she then tells the story that she overheard of, about a Martha who got shot um, because... The, she was looking for her past, and they thought that she like had a bomb or something. That she was like a man in disguise. That last part really did like give me pause. Okay. I, I mean, so for what? Okay, I'm gonna tiptoe around this. For what reason would that person, would a man in Gilead, dress up as a Martha? Okay. What reason so- would that person have? An important historical context that you need for this book is that the basic premise of The Handmaid's Tale is, what if Iran happened here? And we get this, like, the the descriptions of what the women wear earlier on actually differ a certain amount from um, both of the the, the movie and television adaptations we've seen so far. So they wear face veils. Hmm. What are those? Um, they wear like some piece of fabric that covers their faces to a certain amount. Oh, in oh that, uh, that see the thing is because I am that person who uh, consumes visual media, I immediately like think about the Handmaid's Tale, like just the characters from like the promos and the and, yeah. like the pictures. But I guess yeah, they just they have a face mask. You're saying? Well, they, they wear a kind of veil over their face when they go out, and they they cover their hair. So we specifically in the previous chapter get a description that Serena Joy is wearing a veil that covers her her hair and 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 Alfred can see like the the a bit of her hair and is like wow it's still blonde I wonder if she dyes it. Um, oh, and I need to, yeah. when Serena Joy is out gardening, she has a veil that she wears over her hat. Now, now that uh, it's funny actually, I, it took me a while to figure out what like a, a veil really was, and now that I think about it, okay, I'm starting to see a little bit of the visual connections with the uh, analogy that you yeah like it's 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 supposed to be like iran or saudi arabia someplace like that except it's christian fundamentalism instead of islamic fundamentalism um so similarly uh to acts of islamic terror um in those parts you have uh suicide bombers who will dress as women because they can be completely covered in loose clothing oh and blow themselves up Mm-hmm. Um, this is actually a big problem for ISIS. They had to start having female security guards to check uh, the women who are wearing niqabs to see uh, if they were actually women. So yeah, the, the, I think the idea is that there would be some male rebel who would dress up as a Martha um, and therefore would be fully covered and then could blow himself up. 
one of those rascally Baptists at it again. Yeah. I, I, and I do want to mention how weird it is to think of a rebel as a Baptist. Like that's just like I'm yeah, not. Yeah. I, I think it, it's it's a so it's it's there's two choices that um, Atwood makes is about about religion that I think is really interesting. So the Baptists being specifically named as rebels, I think, is really weird and interesting because the at least the Southern Baptists in the United States are are pretty close to um, evangelicals. Yeah. At least in my experience, I might be horribly wrong about this. I do not claim to be an expert. Um, so that the the brand of Christianity that is Gilead is abhorrent even to the Baptists, I think really says a lot about how this is not really a Christian regime. Yeah, um, I mean, as yeah, somebody living in 2019, I only know about how Baptists are rebels in the sense that they keep insisting they are, not in how <laughs> they actually are in any and the respect. other weird thing is that, like, it's set in Cambridge, right? Mm -hmm. um, the Boston metro area is not a very evangelical Christian area. Um, I like, I think we're one of the most Catholic areas. I think like a fifth of our population is Catholic. Mm -hmm. um, so, and like, Catholics and the evangelicals have a, a sordid past. I mean, Catholics and Protestants barely get along let's be real uh <laughs> so it's it's an interesting thing that like a that the rebels aren't catholics and b that like this regime has caught on even here in this area that does not have high rates of evangelical christians so in that same regard elsie do we have a concrete reason as to why margaret atwood set the handmaid's tale in this specific part of the country Yes. Um, well, there's, so there's two reasons. There's a more practical reason of she was living in Cambridge while she was writing the book. Um, she did some of her, uh, oh, some post-grad work. Uh, oh. I can't remember specifically if it was a master's or a doctorate or something um, I, at Harvard. So she was living in Cambridge. Um, and, hey, write what you know. Yeah. Uh, and... I think she did a lot of historical work about the Puritans, um, and she has written uh, other books that are more focused on colonial America um, hmm. and colonial Canada, I think. Uh, there's a, a show called Alias Grace, which is an adaptation of one of her novels, um, and it's on Netflix, and I highly recommend it, and it's about like colonial uh, Canada. And again, this goes back to the, the sort of old-timey language that part of um, Gilead is that they're Puritans. Where where did the Puritan li Puritans live if not Massachusetts? Um, so I think that's that's the, the, the reason it's set in Cambridge, even though from a more uh, grounded sense, it doesn't quite work. Yeah, that's what I was wondering, like if it was supposed to, if that was intentional, like to, sh you know, to further reinforce how, how removed the world of Gilead is from ours, is that like... Even in these tiny communities, it's a completely different, like, a completely different demographic. Yeah. Or is that just like, uh, she just wanted to write what she knew and that's not a huge, like, thing? It's, it's just... Yeah, it's totally up in the air, right? Yeah. I like the fact that it's set in Cambridge because that means I know where things are and what they are, like the Blue It must Hills. be really fun to, like, just, like, as you're reading, you're like, oh, I, I've driven by that place. Yeah, or, there's like, a, um, if you look up the Handmaid's Tale, uh guide to cambridge i think it's called there's some, someone's put together like a google map that has pins mm -hmm. for all the locations and i highly recommend it yeah um 
Yeah, so back to the book. Uh, I think it's it's interesting the discussion um, between Rita and Cora about the Martha who got shot. So there's like this this idea of um, oh they were just doing their job, and the other one's like, well, but like nothing safer than dead, I guess. Yeah. Um, like maybe a downer. Jeez. And I think we get the first sign here that that the the commander of the house is a big deal. Because um, Cora says, well, some will think twice before blowing up this house anyways. And all the same, you know, it was, it was a bad death. Like, they're not, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. So better think twice before coming after us, because, man, we will shoot them accidentally. <laughs> yeah. Um. I, and then there's the the way this this section ends. I choose to have some time before, like, to set things right. I guess, right? Is that what yeah. she was trying to well, communicate? Yeah, I think that it's interesting because, like, Cora says, I can think of worse, at least it was quick. And that yeah. canonically, if you're a, a woman who acts out in some way or becomes defective, you get sent to the colonies and you slowly die of radiation poisoning. Oh. That's, yeah. That, what a way to go, yeah. That, like, oh, well, at least she got shot instead of being sent to the colonies. It was a quick way to go. Yeah, um... You know, sometimes people, like, it's like a common question, you know, would you rather die slowly and painfully or quick and painless? Yeah. It's like, you know, not not a question you'd have at parties, but, like, it, it does, it, it is thrown around from time to time. But, yeah, and then we, we get, we flash back to the, the present, um, and they're going through the, the checkpoint, and one of the guards, who is described as having a peach-colored mustache, makes eye contact with Alfred, and it's this little, like, moment um, where she says, he sees my eyes and I see his and he blushes. His face is long and mournful like a sheep's, but his, his full eyes of a dog's spaniel, not terrier. His skin is pale and looks unwholesomely tender, like the skin under a scab. Neth nevertheless, I think of placing my hand on it, this exposed face. He is the one who turns away. That there's this like weird sexual moment that she has with the guy. Yeah, with this 15-year-old. Yeah. Now, I, I really appreciate the description of the spaniel face as somebody who owned a spaniel growing up. <laughs> it's just, it's just a, it, was like, it was like a really good way to communicate the look. Yeah, she describes it as this like small defiance of rule that she hoards away like a, a child hoards candy. Um, and so yet again, we see the callback to what we see in the first chapter of like small acts of defiance, these small thumbing at the rules. I really like the sentence was like such moments are possibilities, tiny peepholes. And also, again, we see the normal but not normal. Like it's like when you make eye contact with someone on the bus and then you like imagine your life your life together with them. Yep. She has a similar sort of thing where she imagines like coming back in the night for him. Uh, and, like, well, what if what if I were to peel off my red shroud and show myself to him to, yeah. to them by this uncertain light of the lanterns? This is what they must think about sometimes, you know, as they stand endlessly beside this barrier, past which nobody ever comes except for the commanders, if the faithful and their long black. Oh my god! I'm, all right, yeah, this is a really long sentence. Yeah, that like they must think about it, but she's also like, well, but it must also think about getting caught, and that must put a, a damper on things. Yeah, um, I also appreciate the term "dumpy green Marthas." I believe that should be our band name, Elsie. <laughs> Yeah, and I I think this is this is again the none of the women like each other because she describes and she's describing the veils. She says that no one much cares to see the face of a Martha. Yeah, 
um, that even she's sort of like the Marthas are 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 ugly and undesirable, mm-hmm. um, despite the fact that she desperately wants to be friends with the Marthas. Yeah, really, really nice uh, social healthy situation we have. Like, yeah. hey, I think you're disgusting and I hate you, but man, I I really could use somebody to talk to. <laughs> And we also get the the first like real description of the eyes and their vans and they're wearing sunglasses. Oh my god! Do you know? Okay, are you ready for some? Uh, did you know movies trivia? Okay. <laughs> did you know Alfred Hitchcock was terrified of police cops? So in any movie that featured cops, they would always be wearing sunglasses because that was an easy way to communicate fear and soullessness in a character or in a visual medium. So. I totally get where this description is coming from. Yeah, it's like the same thing with the eyes that like you can't you can't see the eyes eyes. Yeah, which is perfect because then they just are the yeah. eyes. Like there's nowhere else, you know. You know what they say eyes are the gateway to the soul. If you're wearing sunglasses then you don't have a soul. That's how visual storytelling works. Yep. And that's why a lot of the time like the 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 um, what is it, the gesture of, like, a character slowly lowering their sunglasses, and they're usually a very nefarious yeah. or mischievous character, that it's an easy way to say, oh, this person has a soul, but they are willing to shield it because they are one of the bad guys. Just, you know, I... Sorry, I talk about visual language a lot. <laughs> well, this book has a lot of visual language despite it being a book. Um, it's really just a series of images. I, I think it's really interesting that she talks about how, well, if they think of the kiss, they they must then immediately think of the floodlights going on, the rifle shots. Um, so instead, they should think about how they'll get promoted and eventually issued a handmaid of their own. Yeah, eventually. If they survive. Is, yeah, if they, if they, yeah. If they that's... Li- and live long to be old enough of being allotted a handmaid of their own. Because like, I think that this chapter pretty heavily implies that there's a civil war going on. Because uh, mm-hmm. you have the the stuff where if they live long enough to, to, to become old enough to get handmaids and also that there are these rebels that are getting smoked out and there there is this, this fighting even in like like relatively close to what is a, a safe, secure zone of the country. Yeah. And especially considering these are 15 year old kids. Like, yeah. These are like these they're, are like they're drafting them young. Like I'm turning 25 this year. I will be 10 years older than these kids and like 15 year olds. Not equipped for war, as it turns out. Um, it's a shocking turn of events. Um, they are perhaps not emotionally mature or ready to wield a machine gun, but, you know, it's, time waits for no man here in Gilead. Am I, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, and, of course they, and, of course, the eyes have vans. Of course they do. Yes. Like, the ultimate symbol of sketchy as hell. Seriously. But I, I think the, the part we have all been waiting for... Oh, yeah. The best here, here part we go. of the chapter... Offred walking away from the guardians and she feels them um, they touch with their eyes instead and I move my hips a little feeling the full red skirt sway around me oh yeah there's a term I won't I'm not sure if we're like I'm not sure what the rating for this podcast is yet but <laughs> there's a term for this that actually involves the f word and I'm pretty sure you guys know what it is but uh that's that is what happening um yeah um <laughs> Yeah, that like, and she she describes it as like teasing a dog. Yeah, that is my like favorite a, chapter. A, a bone that's out of reach. Um, yeah, um, the, the, not, the my favorite line of the chapter. I enjoy the power, power of a dog bone, passive, but there. Yeah, and that like this is this sort of inherent female power of like mm-hmm. these men are are just so incredibly hungry and enticed by her, even though like she's wearing like this full cloak and like. 
basically equivalent to like a nun's habit on her head. Yeah. So I like, do wonder also how old is she by this point? Do we know how old is she? Um, I was assuming late thirties, just be, just based on like how she describes events and stuff. Yeah, and like how she was she's, around. She's in her thirties somewhere. Yeah. I don't recall whether or not she specifically states her age at some point, but she's she's in her thirties. I thought this part was like. I wouldn't. Uh, I, 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 first off, I really do appreciate how Alfred is like willing to be honest, like yeah. honestly, like I don't want to say malicious, but like spiteful a little bit because, yeah. like, yeah, I don't, you know, I have this power, this sexual energy inherent to me because I am a woman surrounded by men who do not. Uh, uh, this is. I don't know the rating of this podcast yet. <laughs> they, um, they, they lack an outlet. Yeah, and and out yes, exactly. I was like, yes. outlets, and to just know that they can't get it off. Yeah, while I and... am here in front of them, that at least satisfies me a little bit. Because if they have to keep me in here like a slave, at least they can't have any enjoyment in it either. Yeah, um, and and she like feels a little ashamed about teasing these boys because um, they're they're so young that none of this is their fault. Yeah, which is interesting to just mention the fact that like you know how much. It's 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 an on it's an all time question, right, Elsie? Mm-hmm. Like the the idea of like when you are working in a totalitarian regime, how much of the terrible stuff you do on a daily basis is your fault versus the fault of the system that controls you? Oh yeah, I have no idea what the answer to that question is. <laughs> I'm not, you know what? And given that this episode is already going long, like I don't really want to attain that because yeah, we would be here for but, another three days. Yeah. So I would not. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that this is a callback to the first chapter when she describes the. The want of the handmaids to trade their bodies um, for for some escape mm-hmm. with the the guardians that really all they have left is their bodies and the the inherent sexual power of femininity, which is I guess is the one I'm going to say the one and possibly the only uh, quote upside unquote to being objectified is that if you have control over that and you don't give it like and they don't have that control then. You have at least that kind of power over them. That yeah. just was an alphabet soup of words, but you get what I mean. Yeah, no, and I, I, I love like I think my favorite line of this chapter is the last line of the chapter, possibly the one before it as well. There are no more magazines, no more films, no more substitutes. Only me and my shadow walking away from the two men who stand at attention stiffly by a roadblock, watching our retreating shapes. That is a really like that. That is a really good sentence. Definitely my top 10 lines of this chapter. Yeah. Um, and like, I, I think this, so like th- what I like to say about modesty is modesty is an arms race. And the problem with arms races is that no one wins. Um, hmm. Basically, if you tell girls to cover their knees, men will just objectify their ankles. Ooh, that's re- that's really like good phrase. Yeah. Huh. And so like, I think this is a similar thing. You have these women who are completely fully covered. They're wearing face fails. They're wearing... um habits like full dresses that like aren't even tight on the arms but the 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 men are still like totally horny for them Um, yeah and i love how they bring up you know standing stiffly like a roadblock because they kind of are roadblock but they're also stiff yeah i think it's just just fantastic wordplay all around Bravo, Atwood. Yeah. I hope they get hard at the sight of us and have to rub themselves against the painted bar- barriers surreptitiously. That I can I visualize that and yeah. it is clear and it is not fun. Like it's like it yeah. I um, I, think this... I don't I'm not gonna sympathize with the Guardians, but I 
understand the plight. Yeah, no, I think this goes back to the question you asked um, with, in the previous episode of who is exactly enjoying Gilead? This seems miserable yeah. for everyone. That you have, like, these young men who in theory should be benefiting from this, like, intensely patriarchal society, but even then... Like, they haven't been issued women yet. They have nothing. They're objectifying women who are completely covered. It's just, I think the term is a self-fulfilling prophecy? Yeah. Where it's, yeah. And it's not fun for anybody. Although, I'm sure, Elsie, by the time we this book ends, we will learn who is getting something out of this society. Yeah, probably. Whoever they are, I'm looking forward to, <laughs> to meeting them or whatever. And I, the last thing, if I may, there's one last thing I'd like to bring up, Elsie, if that's okay with you. I want to ask about the media, the culture of Gilead. Mm -hmm. There are no movies anymore. This troubles me, concerns okay. me. There are no more magazines. Now, I know what she means. She means pornography. Yeah, she like, means, she means dirty like, films. To. But she's also implicitly saying there's no more films, magazines. There's no more culture left. What do these people do? Like, Well, so earlier in the chapter, we get the, the mention of, of where the women are going when the, when the yeah. wives and daughters go. Mm-hmm. They go to salvagings and pravaganzas, which are these oh, big yeah. community-wide events and possibly sometimes even district-wide events where, like, everyone comes together and does things. Yeah. You think there's a there's a precon? <laughs> <laughs> and we'll get to see both of those um, uh, events later in the book, so I don't want to spoil them. But you do have still this kind of mass media, mass culture going on. And we will see a, a television set later on. Oh, wow. TV and Gilead is... Yeah. Interesting, yeah. What really bothers me about this scenario is that, and I guess uh, this is like the most like insignificant part, but where did it all go? Did they just burn it all? Did they get yes. rid of it? Like the preservation of culture and history they, is they burned important. It. And I know that Nazis also did this during World War II. Like they would just burn like documents you, and, you, and culture books. You destroy books, the degenerate art. I mean, it's actually a great story of uh, the Nazis had like a, a traveling show of degenerate art so that people could see how horrible and degenerate it was. Um, mm -hmm. But it was a lot. It was it was a little too popular. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I mean, given the world we live in today, it is nice to know that the internet will not be able to sustain the kind of uh, destruction of degenerate art uh, quote degenerate art, unquote. At the very yeah, least, yeah. But at like the very you know, least. if the women aren't allowed access to computers, then is like yeah. you know, is it really even there? And like I, I think as much as we say that the internet is forever, things do get lost, and there are like mm -hmm. there's still stuff that that will disappear and never come back. Yeah, I mean there are conversations going on right now about uh, in the video game scene about old games uh that are just uh distributed digitally that are just gone forever that you that you cannot find anymore yeah it's just like yeah so i will i will agree with that elsie definitely um it's not too difficult for me to visualize a world without porn but i understand it is also a much a very much a uh part of a lot of people's lives and to know that like offered is getting some kind of thrill out of knowing that there is nothing that these two 15 year old guards can do to relieve themselves is is a powerful sentiment, I will say. Yeah. Powerful sentiment. And I mean and also the, the boys are being being kept in in, in in billets. They're they're in these they will suffer uh later at night in their regimented beds. Um these people yeah. aren't living in family units, they're they're living in like barracks. Mm -hmm. Uh so like you you, you aren't even you don't even have the, the privacy to engage in, 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 in sacrilegious thoughts. As I, now that I think about it, a lot of 
just like a lot of empires, republics that are like founded on like hates or like they're found on bigotry, that kind of thing. They're like they create dystopia are not sexualized at all. Yeah, like, they're not. I, it, like it's... think of the empire from Star Wars. I... There's no any of that. <laughs> well, to go for a more more explicit example, in, in 1984, um, they've figured out a way for no one to have sex. Um, and they've, like, completely banned having sex. I forget, like, what what was their solution? Oh, well, they figured out how to grow babies. Oh, my go- Wow, I- And state surveillance I, is such that, like, they can just arrest anyone who has sex, so. Wow. I, I, for, I had forgotten about that. I, um, wow. So, yeah, the reason I bring that up is just because, like, it is an interesting question to pose, like, in, you know, with the- for just 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 as a as a namesake for the stormtroopers, whether you're talking about the ones that existed in the 40s or the ones that existed in a fictional fantasy, like sex is not often something that you would associate with them, even like you know, even with imagery, you know, yeah. and it's something that like that Alfred directly addresses to these two 15 year olds that like, yeah, you guys are just guards, you are not even people at this point, you are just objects to block us. All you can do around is sit around with your machine gun in your hands. Yeah, you know. That kind of thing, and they've been they've been allotted too much power for fifteen year olds. They shouldn't have yeah. those machine guns. Uh, and I'm down with I'm down with salty off red. Like I was saying, I'm, I'm just down with that. She's uh, with that with her sass. Yeah, she's she's a, a fun character to hang out in the brain of. Yeah, I think we've 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 hit all the 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 notes I wanted to. I mean, we could talk about the state issued girlfriends, but I don't feel like there's much to say about that. Wait, what? Did, oh, I might have missed that. No, I'm just saying that like she. When she talks about Nick, she's like, he hasn't even been issued a woman yet. Oh. And then, again, when she talks about the Guardians, she's like, they haven't been issued women yet. I thought they just meant, like, the whole handmaid situation. But oh, no, no they mean, like, wives as well. Oh, okay. So, where are they? Like, are they also prepped and, and like, trained as the handmaids are? We don't know, because our main character isn't a wife. Oh, I see. Okay. So, there. I, I didn't even, like, make that distinction, I guess. Yeah, well, because huh. she says of, of Nick, he hasn't been issued a, a woman yet. Not even one. Not even one. Yeah. What What a loser, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> huh. So I, we have I, the, I didn't... the state issuing of girlfriends. Just wow. what Jordan Peterson wants. Is that what he wants? No. I knew the incels wanted that. I didn't no. know Jordan Peterson no, wanted Jordan that. Jordan Peterson doesn't want that. But he said things okay. in the past that could be construed as him saying that, but he is the least concise or precise in his language whatsoever. He is completely impossible to understand. So hmm. I don't know, man. <laughs> For the record, not to get political or anything <laughs> on this thing, but there should not be state-sponsored girlfriends. All right? I, I realize I'm going to get some comments, but I, that's just what I believe. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's I, I really... of, of of being allowed possibly to marry. Possibly, yeah. Man, that is an enticing, enticing idea. Um, and I, I, you know, he, they're being kept in barracks. There's, there's no way for them to interact with women other than when they like go through the the posts. So, all right, I, I, lo- I, I, I'm pretty sure you could tell. Uh, Elsie, but I really enjoyed this chapter. This is a lot here. of fun. Same here. This, uh, this is one of my favorite chapters. I, I, I just love the stuff about the dog bone. Yeah, I. I love that just just that analogy is just so good. It's just yeah. like and I, I I mean I just love yeah. the stuff about bodily capital that's that's just present here. Um mm-hmm. and I, I think you you end up seeing it both in like the first chapter and later on in the book as well as this like idea of the inherent power of women um that 
this even though the society has been set up in order to to overpower women and to control them they still have this power and no amount of control can get rid of it yeah um i it is a powerful statement i hope to see it more in any regard in this incredibly sad story yeah and we haven't even gotten to the really sad stuff yet oh great i am <laughs> just i am stoked for that man like we've, for that, we've, we've barely met her family, so you know. Oh no! Oh man, this is oh, this is this is gonna get really sad. It's gonna get sad. <laughs> All right. All right. I uh, you can find me on Twitter at the Muse Sappho and I uh, on YouTube at Sappho of Lesbos. You can find me on Twitter as Mister M R Max Mariner. Uh, there's an extra R in the middle of Mariner there. And you can also find me on YouTube as Max Mariner, without the MR. Our intro music is done by the lovely Daniel Sherriat. And our graphic logo was designed by the one and only Cynthia.